good morning. It's so good to all be together. I am so encouraged. I hope you t- you are as well. Um, my name is Godwin. If I haven't met you before, I'm the lead pastor here at Faith Church, and uh, it has just been so encouraging to my heart uh, to even just sing together. We'll talk about that more in a few minutes here, but uh, it's good to see you. We're starting a new series. You'll see the graphic on your screen, a new series in book one of the Psalms. So that's Psalms 1 through 41. We're not going to do all 41. We're going to do a selection of these Psalms. My introduction is going to be a little longer than usual because I want to give you guys a little orientation uh, around book one of the Psalms. Before I do that, I want to read Psalm 1 to you. So open up your Bibles. There's chair Bibles in front of you as well. And turn to Psalm chapter 1. It's on page 472 in the chair Bible. Hear God's word. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. In 1985, Oscar Wilde's famous play, An Ideal Husband, was first performed in London. And this was popularized by a modern-day movie adaptation with uh, uh, Minnie Driver and Julianne Moore and other friends, hopefully that you know. The play is set in aristocratic London society and centers around the marriage between Sir Robert Chiltern, member of the House of Commons, and Lady Chiltern, his wife. And Lady Chiltern believes that her husband is a paragon of virtue and morality until she finds out a scandalous secret about his past. And of course, in proper Oscar Wilde style, the plot hilariously plays out. But at the heart of this story, this play, we see the question, and here's the question at the heart of this play, is there an ideal man or husband? By the end of the story, without giving away any spoilers, it ends on a rather pleasant Note, showing that every person, even the greatest of us, has real flaws, and that is okay. Now, friends, what about in real life? Is there an ideal man? I'm not talking about some machismo ultimate bro or the man of your dreams or the greatest people person on the planet. I'm asking the question, of course, is there an ideal person from God's vantage point? I believe Psalm 1, what it does is it outlines for us the ideal man from God's perspective. And it does this by, notice, contrasting essentially two different paths, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. Now, whenever we put forth some sort of ideal before us, we are forced to kind of look at ourselves in the mirror. 
And when we do that, we often come face to face with our own frailty, our own weakness, our own hypocrisy. And we're not the only ones. In fact, ancient Israel had this very problem centuries ago. They desperately needed a vision for the ideal Israelites. And think about their spotty history. After being rescued miraculously by God from Egypt, they were given God's law and covenant. His expectations were very clear. But over time, as they entered the promised land, they broke that law, they broke that covenant, and God disciplined them by exiling them to Assyria and then later Babylon. And throughout these times, all of these years, there were these songs, these psalms that were written spanning across the centuries. And these songs became Israel's soundtrack, bringing back memories of life scenes and old events where God had intervened and rescued them and teaching them how to worship God and keep the covenant and so forth. My friends, how do we often approach the psalms? I think we often approach the Psalms in isolation. We look at individual Psalms like Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. We don't really look at the surrounding context. We look at really the context of just this isolated Psalm. So we kind of approach the Psalms like it's a random collection of worship songs with a bunch of different songwriters. There's some truth in that. You've got David and Solomon and Moses and Moses, Moses, Moses and Asaph and the sons of Korah, and they all wrote individual psalms. And each of those writers had individual reasons or stories that kind of shaped their songs or their psalms. But friends, did you know that beyond the songs of the individual writers, there was a final version put together by some unknown editor for Israel? And so what we have in front of us is the final version of the Psalms put together after the exile. Now, notice in your Bibles, above Psalm 1, it says book 1. In parentheses, it says Psalms 1 through 41. You'll see similar notes uh, above Psalm 42 and 73 and 90 and 109. Those are the later books. And so this final editor had something he was teaching in each of these books, collections of Psalms. So our task is not only to discern what the specific psalm may say, like today we're going to look at Psalm 1 in just a minute here, but we also want to discern how does this particular psalm relate to its broader book, in our case, book 1. It's kind of like if I put together a Spotify list of songs that members in our church, let's say, have written, whether it's Charlie or Daniel or Aaron, and my list is rather random. I'm just kind of putting them together on this list. And maybe long after I'm gone, there's another pastor who adds to the Spotify list and some new songs that he kind of puts in there. And this pastor puts the songs together in a different order than I do. And he puts them in categories. Let's just say God, man, Christ response, for example. And he has reasons for doing this. He wants to teach something when someone accesses his Spotify list. Friends, that is kind of how things work in the Psalms as well with these five books. So what is book one all about? Well, we can think about it this way. It shows the historical David who suffers in his rise to power as king. I'll say it again. It shows the historical David who suffers in his rise to power as king, which is really helpful for us because we've just, we're just on the heels of studying David's life in 1 Samuel. So these songs help God's people to see in David an imperfect, though godly man who kept the covenant and who worshiped the Lord. So this is the burden 
of book one. Here's the main point for Psalm 1. You'll see it on your screen. Here's the main point. There are only two ways to live, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. Very simple. There are only two ways to live, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. I want to point out three contrasts as we walk our way through this psalm. Here's the first contrast. We notice in the first two verses, the wicked and the righteous. The wicked and the righteous. Now, the opening words in the CSB translation say, how happy is the one. I think a better translation is, blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. This is beyond just kind of this emotional response. This is about a state of blessing. And only God can give this whole life sort of flourishing within which, of course, happiness is a component. Notice the blessed man, the ideal man, does not do three things. We see that in verse 1. And he does one thing. We see that in verse 2. The emphasis, we're looking at verse 1, is on what he avoids. He does not follow the moral orientation of sinners. Now, the language here is so interesting to me. He doesn't walk, stand, sit, in the advice pathway company of the wicked sinners mockers. You see that? And so there is a progression that I want to point out here. You start by walking around sin, and then you stand in it, and finally you firmly sit in sin. The book of Proverbs describes three classes of fools. We see them all here progressing in evil, from wicked to sinners to finally mockers or scorners. And notice the locations of sin. First, it's in the advice or the counsel. Then there's a pathway. And finally, there's a company. So the psalmist is drawing our attention to the realms of thinking and then behaving and then finally belonging. This is the progression of sin and wickedness. It always starts in the minds, in the realm of ideas and philosophies and ideologies, And then it progresses to our behavior as we start to make choices that break uh, allegiance with God and nurture new allegiances with the world. And finally, sin, in its most fully formed state, settles us in public, in the public company of other sinners. I unfortunately can think of examples where I've seen this progression. Perhaps you can as well. I think of a friend, his name's Brad. I met Brad about five, six years ago when I first came into this area. We had coffee in Rookwood in that area, and he was so excited. He was telling me about his desire to plant a church in the Cincinnati area. Well, a couple years into the church plan, I started to hear things from mutual friends that this uh, friend, Brad, uh, was struggling with same-sex attraction, and he was listening to the voices of the world, voices outside the scriptures, voices outside the church, and he started to impact him just a little bit. And then I heard maybe a year or two later that he had abandoned his family. He had divorced his wife. And recently I've seen pictures of him in northern Kentucky celebrating pride at a particular rally. I don't say this to embarrass him. He's a friend. Friends, this should make us weep. He has been in this building. His wife and children have been in this building for a conference. They're sweet people. And they're hurting, right? So this should, this should make us weep. Sin starts small, but it doesn't stay small. In order to be like this blessed man that we see here, we should think carefully about not only what sin is, but how sin works. It isn't idle or random or occasional or slightly troubling. 
It is always active and pervasive and constantly a threat and deadly if left unattended. The Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 8, um, if by the Spirit you put to that the deeds of the flesh, you will live. I can't remember the author. Oh, there, there it is, Owens. Owen was riffing off that particular verse, and this is what he said, be killing sin or sin will kill you. Do you hear that, friends? Be killing sin or sin will kill you. Sin isn't just personal and private. In fact, considering the corrupting power of the way of the wicked, notice again in verse 1, it's not just the content we're taking in that can corrupt us. Notice it's the company we keep. We can get on these three tracks in verse 1, not only by kind of neutral, impersonal means. So, you know, you're on social media and you're absorbing content there, or maybe it's just articles out there in the world or the news. But there's, there's also this personal, relational component. Brothers and sisters, how are you relating to non-Christians in your life? We 100% want to love our non-Christian neighbors. We want to build friendships with them. We want to build bridges which, which can then withstand the weight of the gospel that we offer to them. All of that is true. But are you becoming more like them or are they becoming more like you? Who is discipling who? Verse 1 reminds us this world isn't a calm river with, with small influence, a river where we can just kind of tread water. This world, friends, is a raging river with a strong current. And if you try to tread water, you will be swept away. The company of sinners, notice this, this world, they aren't neutral entities. They will catechize us. They will disciple us. They will influence us if we allow them to. They will offer advice. They will get you on their pathway. They will sit you down in their company like it's nothing. So what's the solution? Well, look at what the blessed man, the ideal man, does in verse 2. His delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and nights. Now, instruction here is the law, the Torah. So that's the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. But it also includes other books as they're added to the Old Testament canon. As New Covenant Christians, we would say instruction, of course, is the whole Bible. And so the psalmist believes that the mind is the first bastion of defense against this company of sinners that seeks to influence us. So whatever shapes the ideal man or the ideal woman's mind will then shape their life. So this is a call to think deeply, friends, to delight well in the Bible. That's not just for the recluse or the introverts or the Bible nerds or the super-Christians or the pastors or the missionaries. This is the secret to staying in covenant, to being like this ideal blessed man. Notice the invitation here is to delight in God's instruction to take great joy in God's instruction, and to meditate on it day and night. This harkens us back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Listen to the words uh, from, from Moses to Israel. These words that I'm giving you today are to be in your hearts. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hands and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your city gates. Friends, this is what will help, help us be like this ideal 
man, God's word everywhere for everything. So let me just give you two applications. I want to give you two quick applications on what this might look like. Here's the first one. Fill the cracks of your life with the word. Fill the cracks of your life with the word. You know, it's interesting that the psalmist says the ideal man, that the blessed man meditates on God's word day and night. Deuteronomy 6 gives us that same sort of picture. It's not just 20 minutes in the morning. It's looking to fill every part of your life with the word of God. Now, what might this look like? Let me give you a shotgun of ideas here. Okay, here we go. Listen to God's word on your commute to work or wherever you're driving. Open and close each segment of your day, morning, afternoon, evening, with brief prayer and scripture reading. You know, it's interesting, the psalmist, they document that ancient Israel, the Hebrews, they, they looked at their days in three portions, the morning portion, the afternoon portion, and the evening portion. And the Psalms are actually trying to shape the pattern of worship uh, uh, for the ancient Hebrews in such a way that they're going to think about and worship and commune with God in each portion of their day. So let me encourage you to think about that too. What does it look like for you to engage with God, delight in his word in each portion? Here's another idea. Write out scripture verses and scatter them throughout your house, your car, perhaps your office. Take advantage of car times with your children to read one or two verses and maybe briefly discuss and pray. Read a short passage and pray with your spouse before bed. And there's lots of other ideas. I'm sure you've got your own list. But here's the idea. Learn to fill the cracks of your life with the word of God. It's a great way to delight in God and his word. Here's the second quick application. Sing the word. Sing the word. Let's not forget that this very psalm isn't just kind of an instructional manual or a, a textbook or kind of hidden away in some dusty poetry book. This is a song, and it's meant to be sung with the people of God. That's what ancient Israel did. So what's one way to delight in God and his laws? Do what the Israelites did with this psalm. Sing God's word. Now, at Faith Church, if you've looked at our new gospel liturgy, again, the, the sheets are in the, on the uh, round glass table in the lobby. It uh, gives a little explanation of our new liturgy. But if you've looked at that, you'll notice that we're actually going to add a new song. Um, so we're, we're going to do five songs instead of four. So more opportunity on Sunday morning to sing. I grew up, uh, many of you know, playing violin, and I played from the age of four all the way to the age of, uh, well, maybe in my early 20s. And my mom, who's a piano performance major, she uh, accompanied us. So she had to kind of shift from being the, the, the soloist, and she's very, very talented and gifted, to now accompanying my sister and I as we were the solo instruments. Well, friends, what is the solo instrument when the church sings? Is it the band up front? Is it the lead guitarist? You know, is it the, uh, is it the very talented Charlie on the piano? No, I mean, I love all those people, by the way. I wish I can play and sing like them, but it's the congregation, right? The congregation is the solo instrument by which the other instruments and voices are actually supporting. That's the way the Lord has intended. And so let me encourage you in this, friends. I think we can sing louder and more enthusiastically as a church. In fact, I heard some of that earlier this morning. I was encouraged. Part of it is just, hey, we're all together. 
but I think we can give more, whether it's simple words that we're singing or rich and robust words that we sing. We ought to sing like Christians, right? I mean, we are singing about the greatest realities on this planet. And so if you go to a Journey concert or a U2 concert and they're singing about whatever, I mean, you can, you can hear the entire stadium ringing out with voices, right? But they're not singing about God. They're not singing about the goodness, good news of Jesus Christ. We get to do that every Sunday morning. So let me encourage you to sing like Christians. This is a great way for us to delight in God's laws together. Friends, we know that we are not this ideal man, right? Even as we're talking about singing or delighting in the word or going deeper with God's people and so forth. Ah, you read verse one, and you're thinking to yourself, ah, sometimes I do sit in the company of mockers and so forth. We are not this ideal man. So who is? It's not me. It's not you. It's not David, for he had his own failings. But in Psalm 1, in book 1, David creates this sort of messianic mold, which that then gets filled up by who? Jesus. It can only be Jesus. Isn't he the blessed man who doesn't follow the moral orientation of sinners, who meditates on God's laws and takes great delight in his laws, who is, and we're going to see this in a moment, like a fruitful tree? Jesus 100% hung out with all kinds of sinners, but it was he that influenced them, not the other way around. And he certainly delighted in God's laws. Friends, did you know that Jesus quoted the Old Testament something like 80 times? 80 times. It's estimated that one-tenth of Jesus's recorded New Testament words were taken from the Old Testament. He loved God's laws. He loved God's instructions. He prized them. He taught them often. He himself, in his life, death, and resurrection, was the final speech of God. So here in the 21st century, we can rejoice, we can celebrate Jesus as the blessed man of Psalm 1. And then, as those united to Christ by faith, we can imitate him. What if we had the sort of winsome love for the world, yet wise resilience against the world that he had? What if we delighted in God's word the way he did? And that brings us to the next contrast we see. We see a contrast between the fruitful and the fruitless. So put your eyes on verses 3 and 4. Now, to properly understand the Psalms, we have to recognize that they're essentially songs. We've already talked about that a little bit. And songs are what kind of text type? They're poetry, right? They're poetry. And we can say a lot about poetry, but two things we can say about Hebrew poetry are that they are filled with images and they are filled with emotions. Images and emotions. John Calvin compares the Psalms to a mirror, saying that they contain every human emotion possible. Well, they also contain a vast catalog of images, like what we have here. We have a tree in verse 3, and we've got some chaff in verse 4. The psalmist paints a picture of green and growing blessings that the righteous have, and these blessings are even more compelling because they stand in stark contrast with the empty wasteland of the ungodly, 
with worthless chaff blowing away in the winds. So this ideal man, this blessed man, is first of all like a tree. Now, even though Palestine is a dry climate, trees can thrive there because it's often near water. Now, I don't know, uh, I don't want you to to kind of picture a small uh, dogwood in Ohio or something like that. I want you to picture a giant redwood in California, okay? Massive, imposing tree with roots that are extending 100 feet into the ground, big, thirsty trees, okay, with deep roots and near water. And, And with a tree like this, what do you expect? You expect growth, right? You expect leaves and fruit and expansion. I want to point out five blessings from this picture in verse 3. I'm drawing from Dr. Jim Johnston's work as I work through this. The first blessing that we see from this picture is this tree doesn't merely grow. Notice in verse 3, it's planted. Trees grow randomly in forests, but it takes a landscaper, a gardener, for a tree to be planted. And in the same way, God chooses where to place us for our good and the good of others. Friends, nothing in our lives is haphazard. We are planted with great intentionality. We are given new spiritual life and then placed in a particular town and and within a particular church to be nurtured and to grow and to bless others. The second thing I want you to notice here is a tree. This tree is planted beside flowing streams. Verse 3, the tree is intentionally planted by streams that flow with life-giving water. So, so the implication, of course, is we cannot be fruitful, we cannot be useful, we cannot be faithful apart from another source, right? I'm reminded of Jesus' saying in John chapter 15 to his disciples, he said, I am the vine, you are the branches, abide in me. And so each day we are called to draw strength, to draw sustenance for our tasks and our trials from another source, It's not in me, it's not in you, it's in Christ. And we would probably add his body, the church. The third blessing is that this tree will naturally yield fruits. Notice, when you're connected to the vine, you will bear fruit. That's just what happens. The godly person produces thanksgiving in seasons of plenty, faith in seasons of doubt, patience in suffering, peace in turmoil, mercy when wronged, gentleness when falsely accused, strength in the face of temptation, and humility when leading. And this fruit is not just kind of personal and isolated in nature. Hey, look over there, it's Johnny, and he seems to be more godly than before, and he's just kind of hanging out apart from any of us, but it seems like he's more godly. That's not how it works. Johnny's fruit, just the fruit of the Spirit, spills over into the lives of others, multiplies in the lives of others. This fruit isn't isolated virtue, but deeply relational and interconnected within the body of Christ. Fourth, notice its leaves don't wither. In the middle of Palestinian summers, trees' leaves might be brown as the strong sun kind of beats down on the trees. I want you to notice this ideal man, this blessed man, has roots that go so deep below the surface that they're able to drink the water the divine gardener supplies. And so when an unbelieving world sees a woman put on leaves while she is torched by the hot winds of life, there can only be one explanation. I think of our dear sister, Jamie Phillips, who in the middle of cancer, 
just recently wrote me a kind text. That she's been, she's been drawing from the vine. She's been drawing sustenance and strength from the vine. And she sends me this kind text. She's thinking outside of herself and she's thinking about me. Even after hard days of treatment, deep beneath the surface, her roots are drinking from the streams of living water. Deep into the life stream of Christ. What a beautiful testimony this is. And we are the recipients. We are the recipients. Fifth, fifth blessing is whatever he does prospers. Do you see that at the end of verse 3? Whatever he does prospers. Now, prosperity preachers, they, man, they love this verse. <laughs> Woo, here we go. Dollar signs, y'all, you know, Creflo. But the Hebrew word here translated prospers means to accomplish the work you set out to do. Friends, how did Jesus, the truly blessed man, accomplish his work? It was by way of a cross. He prospered through suffering and death. And so in God's economy, the work he gives us often prospers through our suffering and through our humiliation. The blessing, the blessing then, is that the pain and confusion, they're not pointless. Do you hear that? The pain and the confusion aren't pointless. Friends, don't you want to be like this tree? Maybe you're in a place of spiritual drought and dryness right now. In fact, I've talked to a few of you recently who have said exactly that. Would you consider praying to be a tree like this? Perhaps in your sin, you've gone to broken cisterns for your source of life. Would you consider the source that is offered to you, if you're a Christian, the source of Jesus himself, the spirit of Christ that's in you? And Jesus was the ultimate fruitful tree, was he not? Connected to his father in his earthly life, dependent upon him, pulling away often in prayer. And think with me about the fruit that he produced. Look at what his salvation accomplished as you consider the early church and the disciples that were miraculously saved and, and the birth of this early church and, and all the ways that the gospel advanced miraculously, bringing new life to more people. And ultimately, friends, we today in this room, we are part of his spiritual bumper crop of fruit. Now consider how this fruitful, useful Life-giving tree stands in great contrast to the next image. Look with me at verse 4. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Now, the picture here is of a threshing floor during harvest time after the heads of wheat are crushed to separate the kernel from the husk. The whole thing's kind of tossed up in the air so that the wind will carry away the lighter husk. That's the chaff, while the heavier kernels fall to the ground. Now, that chaff is entirely useless, isn't it? It's flimsy and it's thin and it's weightless. Nothing could be farther from the picture of the blessed man in this tree. Instead of a solid California redwood, the wicked man is a hollow, flimsy husk. He doesn't produce fruit. His life is a shell. No roots to hold him steady. No water to nourish him or produce fruit within him. He is blown about by the winds of the world. Friends, the wicked are ruthless, weightless, useless, and worthless. In fact, chaff is entirely in the way. You have to remove it in order to find the useful grain, right? 
So an empty house isn't always obvious on the surface. Some people go to church, do Christian things, and know the stories of the Bible and know the language of Christians, but eventually the winnowing will reveal the truth. Maybe it's crisis for them or crisis for one of their loved ones, and, and they don't survive that ordeal spiritually. They're exposed. So let this be a warning to all here this morning. Here at Faith Church, we want to be a church that's full of real, life-giving trees. But we also want to be a church that sees God planting new trees in our midst, right? New trees out of the husks. I mean, the, the reality is we were all husks at one time, right? We were all chaff, fruitless, useless, not blessed, not glorifying to the Lord. But God planted us anew with miraculous new life and new fruit, right? He can do that for you. If you're here, you're not a Christian, let me just encourage you right now. He can do that same miracle for you. If you repent of your sins and wickedness, put your trust in the truly blessed man, Jesus. That brings us to our final contrast here, the perishing and the saved. Put your eyes on verses five and six. We've seen the character of the ideal man, the blessed man. We've seen the usefulness of the ideal man, the blessed man. Now we see the ends. It's the final outcomes of both the wicked and the righteous. The first group will perish, notice, and those like the blessed man will be saved. Verse 5 says, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment. Now, that's a reference to the final judgment. When judgment day comes, the wicked, those who walk and stand and sit in the company of sinners, who are like chaff in this world, they will not have anything to stand on before holy God. But it's not only the wicked who will not stand at the end of time. Notice the end of verse 5. Notice the end of verse 5. It says, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. You see that? So the wicked won't stand in the end, nor should they within the people of God now. That's what that verse implies. Does this mean that God wants, you know, non-believing people to be completely excluded from any engagement with God's people? Of course not. The concern here, I believe, by the psalmist is hypocrisy. Those who claim to be fruitful trees, those who are hanging around and, 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 and kind of calling themselves Christians but are really weightless chaff, those folks shouldn't stand in the assembly. Now, one of the applications here for Faith Church, and this is not an easy topic to talk about, certainly not quickly, but I will briefly, and that's the topic of church discipline. At Faith Church, we welcome all kinds of people to our Sunday morning uh, gathering. And so, again, if you're here for the first time, if you're a Christian, if you're non-Christian, you are so welcome. We want you to hear the gospel of Jesus and be strengthened and respond with faith and repentance. But as a church, we are called to identify true confessors of Jesus and then bind them to this assembly. That's what church membership is all about. This keeps the church pure. This keeps the witness of the church pure. So when someone we thought is a Christian over a period of a long time is showing themselves to live in clear, unrepentant sin, and after going through the process Jesus outlines in Matthew 18, they continue to be unrepentant and hardened towards God and the people of God, well, that person, even according to verse 5, should not stand in our assembly. The Lord calls us to expel them. It's motivated by love. Our hope is that he or she will eventually repent and be restored to the assembly. But this is important. You see this concern in the Old Testament, not just the New Testament. You know, as a church, we have a duty to make. 
We have a duty to make sure, as best as we can, that our assembly is full of trees planted in Christ. Imperfect trees, growing trees, repenting trees, but still real trees. In fact, baptism and the Lord's Supper work in this manner as well. Baptism, which really excited about seeing this in just a few minutes here. Baptism is the initiatory act of a new Christian. It brings them into the local church family of God. And so when we baptize them, we're saying, yes, you're a real tree planted in Christ. Come into the assembly. And the Lord's Supper, which we're also about to do in just a minute here, the Lord's Supper is the ongoing affirmation of of that same thing. Hey, you're still... You're still a tree planted in Christ. You're still part of our assembly. And so taking away the Lord's summer, that's supper. Taking away the Lord's supper is also known as excommunication, right? That's where that word comes from. It's withholding that affirmation from them. Now, I know it's not fun to talk about this, but brothers and sisters, hear me now. This is part of the work of the local church. It is vital to the health of every local church. God uses membership and baptism in the Lord's Supper to keep us going. Now, finally, notice in verse 6, the reason the godly flourish. It says, the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. It's because God is watching over us. This is the reason we are blessed and flourishing. You know, at the end of the day, when all is said and done, the real question in life is not whether I know God, but whether he knows me. If Governor uh, Whitmer decided to show up at Milford's uh, 4th of July parade, there's no way I could have personal access to her, right? I I totally am talking about Michigan's governor. Wow. I grew up in Michigan just for... (laughs) DeWine, DeWine, there it is. Let me me restart this illustration. (laughs) So... Give me a little grace. <laughs> I truly hope Governor Whitmer does not come to our <laughs> Fourth of July parade, just to be clear. So if Governor DeWine decides to show up at Milford's Fourth of July parade, there's no way I would have access to him, right? There's no way. Absolutely not. Unless he knows me. It doesn't matter that I know him or a bunch of us know him. It doesn't matter. If he doesn't know me, it doesn't matter. I'm not going to have access to the governor. Friends, when it comes to God's blessing today and in eternity, the first question isn't, do I know God, but does God know me? Does he know my way? Has he planted me near streams of living water? Notice no one watches over the wicked to protect and bless them. Their way leads to ruin, if not in this lifetime, certainly in the next. But God's people, notice he watches over your way. He will get you home. All these blessings are ours, not because there's any good in us, but because there's every good in Jesus. Remember, friends, he is the blessed man of Psalm 1. God blessed him. God prospered him as our sinless Savior. And so our first response to Psalm 1 ought to be to bless Jesus, to worship Jesus, to recognize that he has done what we have failed to do. He isn't only our substitute in his death, he is our substitute in his life. For he lived the life that we could not, and he died the death that is owed us. So bless Jesus this morning. Worship him. And 
If you are united to Christ by faith, then all the blessings of Psalm 1 are yours through Christ. And Psalm 1 now shows us how to keep the covenant. It is possible to live out this psalm as you draw sustenance from Jesus. This is the way of true blessing and happiness. It is to walk the path of Christ, bearing the fruit of Christ in the strength of Christ for the glory of Christ. May we as a church do this joyfully. Amen. Let's take a moment now to silently ponder this psalm and message.